Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician from Coventry and today we have a new person joining us. Hello, my name is Dr. Akonasara and I'm a rheumatology registrar at uh, South East. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm going to hand it over to you and you can start with your case. Okay, so just to give you the heads up, I'm going to be deliberately a bit vague about the um, the condition to start with because I don't want to give everything away too soon. So I want you to do a bit of work to get what the diagnosis is. Okay, so I'd like you to put yourself in the shoes of a medical SHO or medical registrar at okay. night. Actually, why don't we go for medical SHO? Okay. You're a CMT doctor, you're on a night shift and you get referred by a and a 19-year-old university student. She's of African origin. She presents to Annie with right upper arm pain. That's all they tell you over the phone. You ask a lot of questions, kind of probing questions, but you're in a hurry and the referring doctor says to you, this patient's in all the time. I'm surprised you haven't met her already. She's been in, in at least 12 times in the last six months. Okay. And she usually comes in with some sort of pain and is always asking for morphine. Okay, so 19-year-old female of African origin who's presented with upper arm pain. Sounds like she's in hospital a lot and she's been requesting morphine. Now, I'm obviously concerned about requesting very high dose, doses of a very concentrated and uh, painkiller such as morphine. So that's quite unusual. Right upper arm pain. When she's presented before, has the pain always been in her arm or has it been elsewhere? No, it's, she complains of pain, but in different places. Sometimes it's her right arm, sometimes left. It could be, it could be leg, sometimes chest pain. But this is often her, her way of presenting is pain. So right upper arm pain, uh, I'd want to be thinking about, is it a skin pain that's causing it? Or is it something deeper? Is it a muscular pain? Or is it a bony pain? Or is it a venous vascular pain? Is this a DVT in the arm? Is this an upper limb DVT? Is this an infection? Could be, is this a septic joint, septic arthritis? Is this a cellulitis? Has she had any trauma? Mm, good question, yeah. So is she, does she go to the gym a lot? Has she been lifting weights that's causing the pain? Although I would probably expect bilateral pain, not just unilateral. That's right. Um, has she been on any medications? Has she taken anything over the counter? Is she taking anything that she's maybe bought on the internet that could be contributing to pain? Very unlikely she's on statins, but sometimes that can cause arm pain. That's true, yeah. Thinking through my surgical sieve, malignancy is unlikely. She's a frequent attender. Thinking along the lines of something that we've done to her, very unlikely. She is of African origin. She's quite young, frequent attender, pain all over. I'm starting to think, is this a hematological condition? Very good. Yeah. So bony pain, are we thinking? Sickle cell, maybe? Yeah, excellent. Yes. So um, so you think you're going to sort of narrow down the differential diagnosis even before you go to see her. So even though you're in a hurry, you're kind of thinking these things through as you walk. And yeah, absolutely. Perhaps you've checked her old blood test results before you went to see her and you may notice that there are that she's anemic so that would kind of help you with the diagnosis as well um and although you don't have blood tests back for today you've got things that can that you can work with so then when you go to see her and you go to assess her um she tells you indeed that she does have sickle cell disease okay um what do you do then what do you ask her what sort of what do you look for in her investigations 
so far, I've only got a history from the A&E doctor. Therefore, it's really important that as I'm approaching this patient as the medical SHO on nights, the CMT trainee, I want to take a history again from the patient. So just to recap and clarify some things in my mind. So where's the pain? What's the type of pain? Does it travel anywhere else? So the classic sort of pain questions, the quality, the quantity, radiation of pain, does anything make it better, anything make it worse? When she's had pain like this before, has it been the same as this pain? Yeah. Do painkillers normally help when she takes them? Um, Does she have any associated symptoms with the pain? Any fever? Any rash? Any weight loss? Night sweats? Appetite? Shortness of breath? Any chest pain? So really, I want to take a full focus presenting complaint history, but also I want to take a systemic history as well. Yeah, I think that's really important because sometimes we can just go and take a history and just focus on that one thing the patient tells us and focus on that alone and potentially miss quite a lot of other things that would be relevant. Even if the patient has presented before 12 times in the last six months, doesn't mean something new couldn't be going on. Yes. So it's always always good to just make sure that you've covered all bases with patients, especially when they're they're in A&E, so you don't miss anything that could really trouble you down the line. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think we often get too focused on a diagnosis too early on in the consultation. And sometimes when we do that, we may miss other potential diagnoses. So take a history. So then you go and see her, you take her history. She says she's been here before. She usually suffers from pain. This is um, a sickle cell crisis pain that she's got. It's very much bony pain. And it started a few days ago. She tried ibuprofen and codeine, which is what she has. And she basically used it until she ran out of codeine. Yeah. And was able to get ibuprofen, but it really wasn't making much of a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so she came into A&E because she's tried managing it at home and hasn't succeeded. Um, but since she's been here, she's been waiting A&E for three hours now okay. and um, is still in pain. She um, has asked for painkillers, but yeah. they have given her paracetamol and some codeine. Okay. Was the paracetamol given orally or intravenously? Orally. So she does have IV access, though. Yeah. They've taken bloods from her. Uh, they've taken a venous gas as well, um, just because they do that anyway with every patient. Um, and she's just sort of sit- sitting and groaning in pain when you see her. You examine her, but don't really find any any other obvious things. So no rashes, yeah. no joint swelling, um, and she's not got a fever. Okay. So... I'm happy with the history that I've taken. I'm happy with the examination. It doesn't sound like infection's a possibility. She's apyrexial. She sounds like she's systemically well, blood pressure, oxygen saturations. Yeah. They're okay. Chest is clear, is it? Yeah, her chest is clear. Okay. So... What sort of investigations would you sort of start with? So they've sent bloods off. Yeah. So I need to go back to my differential diagnosis list. So I, I know that she's got sickle cell disease and therefore I need to find out what a haemoglobin is to make sure that she's not hugely anemic. Um, it's very common that they often are anemic and occasionally this is an iron deficiency anemia. However, if we know that, we don't necessarily need to go down the iron levels and ferritin levels at this stage. Mm. I'd do a white cell count to find out if there is any infection and a neutrophil count. CRP to see if there is any infection that I've picked up. Look at her kidney function. Yeah. I would like to look at her liver function. 
I may be needing to give her some high doses of some quite powerful pain relief. So I want to make sure that her kidneys and her liver is working and able to metabolize the medication that I'm going to be giving her. If I want to do some radiology, um, I always think when anybody's got sickle cell, um, I'm concerned about the chest. Um, I know there's a high incidence of developing chest symptoms and I would do a chest x-ray to make sure if she'd had any respiratory symptoms, you'd definitely need to make sure that the chest was entirely clear. Okay. I probably wouldn't scan the arm at this stage. I don't think a DVT, although it was in my differential, is up there in one of the commonest things. Yeah. Um, although I'd bear it in mind if the pain persisted and on examination the arm was swollen, tender, consistent with a DVT. So that's all very fair, really. So because it's because it's sort of at this point, it's one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, you've requested a chest X-ray. You're waiting for blood results. The nurse in charge comes to you about half an hour later and says, "Look, Amy, I, do, I really don't think we should do a chest X-ray for this girl. She's 19. She's had um, 11 chest X-rays this year. Yes. Can we not do one? And then you know you think, okay, that's fair enough. Yeah. We'll hold off for now. Yep. And see what happens. I think that's entirely reasonable. Absolutely. She's very young. Um, But then what other investigations might you do apart from the bloods and a chest X-ray? It's not worth doing a hemoglobin electrophoresis because I already know that she's got sickle cell disease, so we don't really need to be creating any more work. You could look at her urine dipstick to find out if she has an infection, see if there's any protein in the area. You could potentially X-ray the area. So um, individuals with sickle cell disease have an increased incidence of avascular necrosis. More common tends to be, you see it in the hip region. Um, again, upper arm could occur in the acetabulum, in, in the um, shoulder. So potentially you might want to x-ray the region to see if there's any fractures or any damage or any evidence of underlying osteomyelitis. Yeah. Again, can occur, but x-ray is not the best, you know, um, investigation of choice for osteomyelitis, but it's worth thinking about. Uh, absolutely. Um, and that's what we did for this patient. So she had her arm x-rayed. That looked fine. Blood results came back with her hemoglobin of 62, which was mildly lower than it had been. I think yeah. she it was 67 prior to that. So not <coughs> dramatically different. Um, she's still not breathless, but her pain is a little bit better controlled because you've given her something. Okay. So you've given her a bit of oromorph, so that's helped a little bit. Um, but she's still in pain. Um, but you admit her into hospital. Um, urine dipstick is negative. Having no need for a chest X-ray, you've not really done one. But yeah. then her blood results come back. And as I've mentioned, um, the white cell count's a little bit high at 12. Yeah. CRP is maybe 20. You could possibly put that down to um, just her being in pain and having a crisis. Or it could be an infection that you haven't yeah. seen somewhere. Yeah. So you probably want to bear that in mind. In terms of treatment, how would you treat her? First of all, um, I'd want to ensure that I'm clear of what precipitated the crisis. Perfect. I'm glad you brought that up. So, um, infection, you mentioned from the history and, and the blood test, the CRP is slightly elevated, slightly raised white cell count. There's normally precipitant to a sickle cell crisis. Infection, dehydration, stress, changing housing, many, many causes, but infection, dehydration are common. So I'd want to make sure that I'd ruled out or ruled in a precipitant. And then I need to think about how I'm going to manage this patient. So 
it doesn't sound like she's acutely unwell. It doesn't sound like she needs resuscitation. It sounds like the main concern is pain. Right. So I need to treat the pain and I also need to treat the precipitant. If the precipitant was infection, urine or chest, I could use oral antibiotics. Individuals with sickle cell are more prone to developing infections due to encapsulated bacteria, normally because they have splenic problems. Yeah. So haemophilus in particular. So I'd need to think about starting a penicillin. Often patients with sickle cell are usually on a penicillin prophylactically anyway. Mm. Check your urine, treat if there was an infection, make sure she's not pregnant. Yeah. That's a possible precipitant. Give intravenous fluids. So I'd give normal saline or Hartman's fluid. Even if she's not dehydrated on the blood test, she may still be dehydrated that could have caused a precipitant. So she may benefit from some intravenous fluids. Pain relief wise. I know we've talked a lot about drug seeking behavior, but she's in pain. Yeah. So I think we need to either give oromorph or morphine and try and titrate to her pain and make sure that she's comfortable with that. Yeah. With the morphine, she'll get some side effects. So you might want to give an antiemetic. And also when you give lots of morphine or codeine, they often get quite itchy. So you may want to think about adding in an antihistamine as well. So some of the problems this patient has frequently, because she's coming so often to yeah. any, she's had some quite common problems in A&E, including delaying treatment um, and especially delaying receiving analgesia. Um, she's also had been given insufficient or even excessive doses of medications or inappropriate medications. I mean, if she's coming to A&E having used ibuprofen and codeine or tramadol, which is quite often what these patients do at home, paracetamol isn't going to make that much of a difference mm. to you, especially if you give them oral paracetamol. Um, so for her, she will have spent the last three days in pain at home and in A&E the last three hours really receiving inadequate treatment until somebody thinks actually maybe we should step this up. They often feel quite stigmatized as being drug seeking, like you mentioned. So they, and that often can cause a delay in presentation because they just don't want to be treated like a drug, a druggie every time they come into hospital. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and so, and, and by the time they get onto the ward from A&E, they're not in the best of moods because they've been in pain a long time. They've been treated as though they want something that they don't need and they're ill and it's the middle of the night. So often they're in a really bad mood by the time you see them in the morning. Understandably so. <laughs> Understandably so. Yeah. I, I know I will be. Yeah. Um, so it's just kind of to bear that in mind. I think people ought to bear that in mind when they see a patient and just think about what the patient's journey would have been in how you interact with them. Yeah. Um, I think one of the one of my big sort of take-home messages when I've seen patients with sickle cell disease is just pay attention to their story. Um, not everyone has the same story, but very often they have overlapping themes in their stories and, and what they tell you is quite important. Some of them have a care plan just to avoid these situations so when you come to hospital and you and you produce a care plan yeah. people are more likely to follow that than to come up with their own conclusions as to why you're there moving forward so the patient then goes onto the ward receives lots of fluids iv fluids lots of analgesia and in fact when they're post taked in the morning the consultant says why don't we put them on a pca because the patient says that has worked in the past okay so they get put on a patient controlled analgesia of morphine and she she's using that with good effect 
And that's the other thing to mention is when a patient's in A&E, they're given something but not asked, has this worked? So that's quite important to check. If you've given them something and it hasn't worked, try something else or increase the dose of what you've given them. So she goes onto the ward and two days later, you're on another night shift and you get bleeped because um, this patient complains of shortness of breath and you overhear the name um, and you remember that this is the same patient you clocked in two days before. So you go up there and she is breathless and in a bit of chest pain and you ask the nurses to do a full set of OBS. She's a little bit hypoxic, but not by much, really. Um, 96%. 95 on air yeah um slightly tachypneic but she does have a mild fever what do you do then and what's what goes through your mind so she's obviously had an acute deterioration with a shortness of breath she's hypoxic she's again it's the middle of the night um so first of all to ensure following the standard a b c d e process is she clinically stable do i need to give her any oxygen do I need to give fluids? Do I need to maintain her blood pressure? Check her urine output, check her temperature, check her blood glucose, do a venous blood gas, check her lactate. So just general things to make sure that she's clinically stable. However, I know she's got sickle cell disease. She's short of breath. She's got some chest pain. Could this be a pulmonary embolism? Mm, yeah. Possibility. Or... Going back to that, actually, she's been in hospital for three days. When she was in hospital, was she on prophylaxis? I've often felt that patients who do have sickle cell disease, because they have a low haemoglobin, occasionally a low platelet count, sometimes thrombotic prophylaxis isn't prescribed when it should be. So it's always worth checking that that's been prescribed. Absolutely. So PE is a risk. She's also at risk of um, adult respiratory distress syndrome, which can occur in individuals with sickle cell disease or sickle cell chest has she had a blood transfusion since she's been in no no one's transfused her okay so although she's anemic she hasn't required a blood transfusion if she had i'd be thinking about transfusion related lung injury but it doesn't sound like that's a possibility so i'd probably think about now doing an ecg and probably doing a chest x-ray yeah um and i think that's entirely the right thing to do and this time people take you seriously and they do do a chest x-ray <laughs> okay. um, and um, you see some new pulmonary infiltrates on her right lung okay what would be your differential diagnosis so it's just on one side not both sides so it's a unilateral so I'd be thinking about infection would be something I'd want to rule out it would be unlikely to be a very large wedge infarct consistent with a large PE if it was lung injury because of the sickle cell, it's normally bilateral infiltrates. Yeah. So it's unlikely to be unilateral. So at the moment, the top of my list would be infection. So absolutely. Um, and patients do change over time, as we all know. She wouldn't have necessarily had symptoms on admission, which she didn't. Yeah. And this developed over time. So um, Treating her for a pneumonia then would be perfect, whether you want to call it community-acquired or hospital-acquired, would obviously depend on how the duration of her being in hospital and, and some other factors, but we won't go through that too much today. Um, but thinking about her as a patient with sickle cell disease with a new change in respiratory symptoms, you have to consider the acute chest syndrome yeah. or acute chest crisis, um, which 
consists of having a fever and or respiratory symptoms and a neopulmonary infiltrate and chest x-ray. So this technically is, is in the same category as, a, as an acute chest syndrome, yeah. although it is unilateral. Um, it can be caused by an infection or it can be caused by the sickle cell disease itself, the crisis. So your basic treatment of pain relief carries on, um, never forgetting that, but treating the bacterial or viral infection that's caused this infiltrate yeah. will be higher on your list. And considering a top transfusion, like you mentioned, or in more severe cases, if she's quite severely um, hypoxic, then you might want to consider an exchange transfusion. Usually you'd have to, to pro- probably discuss that with a hematologist yes. um, yeah. and intensive care who already should be involved at this point absolutely yeah because these patients do go off quite quickly so yeah so in every patient who comes in with with a crisis whatever crisis that is they just need to be monitored for any change in their circumstances because the condition could develop further so moving forward so i'm going to promote you now to be in the (laughs) hematology registrar Oh (laughs) oh dear i don't think that would be very good for the hospital but yes i will try my best so you've um you've come into yeah. your your hematology ST3 okay and um so you've been referred this patient by the acute medical team right. to see when you come in on Monday morning you go over to see our patient let's call her Abby what what sort of long term treatments should you be thinking about with her so say her chest crisis has settled down her yeah. pain is now quite well controlled by the time you get there right what what kind of next steps would you be thinking about in terms of long term management Bearing in mind when she came into hospital, she was only on ibuprofen and codeine. Yeah, so um, we know that individuals with a sickle cell, as we've mentioned before, are prone to infection, particularly by encapsulated bacteria. So she probably should be on prophylactic penicillin V. Perfect. And um, she probably needs to be started that as soon as possible. If she's on paracetamol and codeine long term, she's going to be probably constipated. So maybe adding a laxative in. She's going to be itchy, potentially, so adding in an antihistamine such as pyroton or chloramphenamine, as it's also known, loratadine, fexofenadine is also a good one for itchiness. I guess if she was iron deficient, she may give ferrous sulfate. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what her iron stores are like or what her ferritin's like, so I'd be thinking about along those lines. Yeah. Um, I'd want to really know what her family history was. Was there anybody else in the family who could potentially have sickle that we haven't identified that we need to look at yeah but also around that not just is there anybody else who's unwell but what sort of support does she have at home yes um is she living at home she's a university student is she in halls how is this affecting her university life absolutely Uh, there are other sort of psychosocial aspects to having a long-term illness that even a young person really needs to to have a real discussion over which may not happen there there and then yeah. but it's certainly a conversation that needs to continue to be had in the outpatient yes. department and certainly in some of the tertiary centers i've worked at where we do see a lot of sickle cell disease we do have specialist sickle cell nurses um that's quite lucky yeah it was brilliant so they any patient who came into hospital with a sickle cell crisis was seen by the sickle cell team that day and then either taken to the ward or discharged they had a very specialist care and that must be better than being looked after by somebody who's not a specialist in the area because they're aware of all the pitfalls of the condition, what they need and the psychological support that you mentioned. So it's really important. Absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned that because then we can sort of think of that patient 
as a whole person. So when, when we understand what their experiences <coughs> have been on the previous admissions, what the experience is on the current admission, you can kind of plan. You know they'll be readmitted again. Yeah. It's kind of inevitable, but you can plan for future admissions or maybe preventing some admissions. Yes. So I think um, trying to come up with a care plan. It's a really good idea. Is a really good idea for these patients. Yeah. Um, and also trying to sort of advise them when they run out of medications, what routes to take, if they really don't want to come into hospital, um, and at what point they should come into hospital. Yeah. Uh, usually they know, and usually they know when they're ill enough to be in hospital, and they know when they're well enough to go home. So quite often when you talk about discharge planning, the patients will tell you when they're well. They'll yes, know. I have noticed that actually. Or you'll go in one day and they'll be like, I'm better now, and they'll go. So I'm like, okay, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they kind so of I decide for you. That. Yeah, yeah. Is there a particular guideline that we can refer people to for the management of sickle cell? Yes, there's a nice guideline, um, which we can put a link on the website. Uh, so yes, there's a nice guideline to follow, and that's um, that's quite useful. It's very painless to read as well. It's very there's there's a paragraph that just talks about the acute management yeah. of um, giving them fluids, analgesia, antiemetics, laxatives, like you mentioned, yes. and things to look out for, when to reassess after analgesia has been given. And that's, I found that really useful tool to follow. Okay. So check out the NICE guideline. And what are the long-term complications of having sickle cell? We've talked a bit about the psychological and the you know, effects of it. So, I mean, you're right, having a chronic condition must be, can be very difficult. But what about the medical long-term effects of sickle cell? I think some of it we've talked about already. So um, you've talked about avascular necrosis yeah. for having frequent crisis on one joint or a part of a bone. So that's quite common. Yeah. Um, some of them might need a joint replacement. Yeah. Um, asplenism, but that happens quite young and they will have to be on some sort of prophylaxis, yeah. usually penicillin V, lifelong. Um, there is a risk of stroke because where there are infarcts, bony infarcts, there can be infarcts elsewhere, whether that's in the myocardium or in the brain or even in, in the kidneys sometimes. Yes. So um, it, can be, it can have quite devastating effects. You have fairly young patients having strokes because of sickle cell disease. And what actually is sickle cell disease? If you go back to the pathophysiology of sickle cell. Okay, so um, so going back, sickle cell disease is an autosomal recessive gene defect in the beta chain of hemoglobin A. And so that results in a production of the sickle cell hemoglobin, which is referred to as hemoglobin S or HBS. So the inheritance is autosomal recessive, as I mentioned. So there are often patients who have sickle cell traits without having the disease. Okay. And um, if you have a patient who inherits the S part from one parent and the S part from another, they will develop sickle cell disease. There are other forms of, of sickle cell disease that can occur. So inheriting hemoglobin S and another defective gene such as beta-thalassemia can result in a different type of, of sickle cell disease. And the result of that is instead of having a normal shaped hemoglobin, they'll have cyclin. So it's sort of shaped like a banana, I think is probably the best okay. way to put it. Yeah. And so instead of that red cell going through the blood vessel normally, it does get stuck. It's more sticky. It gets stuck to each other, each other ca causing um, vaso occlusion and resulting in crisis because there is then no blood supply to the distal part of that blood vessel. And that's why they get more strokes. That's why they get pain in the bone because the blood supply in the bone is affected. Okay. 
and, and we, that's why it's also important to give them fluids so you can kind of, of keep those fl- those um, those blood vessels open as much as you can. And I guess because the blood is an abnormal shape, this banana shape, they do hemolyze a lot more, don't they? They do. So they don't live as long as a normal red cell would, which is about 120 days or so. Um, and as a result of that, they, they are anemic because yeah. um, they do often have hemolysis. Uh, whether they're in a crisis or, or if they're not in a crisis, the cells die younger. Okay. Okay. So I guess if they're hemolyzing more, they're releasing lots of bilirubin. So jaundice is a possibility as well. Absolutely. Jaundice is a possibility. And, and in, in going ahead with that, they can develop gallstones. Yeah. Exposure to sickle cell disease is quite variable around the country. And so it depends on where you are. In some places, you might see lots of patients with sickle cell disease. And in some places, you might see none at all. Um, so some trainees find that they have a lot more experience than others in dealing with sickle cell. So that's something to also bear in mind. Okay, thank you very much. Anything else that you want to feed back to us about sickle cell? So I'd just like to just kind of conclude by giving a couple of take-home messages, Yeah. Uh, which is not to delay analgesia and try and offer it within the first 30 minutes of presentation Yeah. Um, and check if that's helping. The second thing is just to regard the patient as the as an expert in their condition, especially when they're an adult, they've had it since they were a child, they probably understand it quite a lot more and how they how medications work for them. Yeah. Um, and then the third thing and final thing is to try and find and treat any precipitating factors. You can't obviously you can't make any changes to the environment because often whether getting too hot or too cold or any of those changes abruptly can cause a crisis, but you can deal with things like dehydration and infection. Okay, thank you. And I reiterate those learning points. It's really good to have a recap of sickle cell. Um, It's something that I don't see as much as I used to when I worked in a different area where there's a lot of sickle cell. So it's also important to recap on the management, as you said, particularly in the acute setting. It's good to know that there's a nice guideline on sickle cell. And it's also good to look at how we manage them in the long term. And just to add to that as well, um, as well as antibiotics, we must also make sure they're vaccinated yes. against the encapsulated bacteria and folic acid as well. Hematologists also use hydroxycarbamide, which is which is quite useful in sort of in two ways in increasing the hemoglobin F, which is a fetal hemoglobin, yes. which doesn't sickle. But at the same time, the drug also helps in reducing intercellular adhesion and improving the blood flow. So it has two effects. But that's something it has two effects but that's something the haematologist will start not the acute medical team okay so refer to haematology as soon as they come in for some specialist advice thank you very much for that Akon and welcome to the team thank you and thank you to everybody for listening if you want to get in touch with us email us at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or you can tweet at rcplondon thank you for listening